Or you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. My name is Blake Jennings. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Grace Bible Church. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 7. So as you turn there, let me ask you, where do you go in life to find happiness? What do you do in life to try to make yourself content, make yourself feel joy deep inside? If you follow advertisers, if you do what advertisers want you to do, then when you want some happiness, you should pop open a Coca-Cola. Or if that's not strong enough for you, you should grab a Heineken. Maybe that will do it. Or maybe what you need is to go buy a motorcycle or take a vacation to Fiji. Maybe that will finally provide happiness deep in your soul. Or maybe you should buy a house because real estate advertisements always have the happiest people in them. So maybe that's really what you need to feel content. Or, or maybe it's not something you need to buy. Maybe you need a new relationship in life. So go get married because jewelry advertisements always have happy people. Or if you're following Facebook feeds and you're looking at the people on Facebook, then maybe what you need to be happy is a new baby because those people are always happy even though they haven't slept for like a week. <laughs> or maybe if you really want to be happy, be like this couple and get the new house and the new baby at the same time. Then you get double happiness. We live in a world that assumes that contentment is found in circumstances. That your contentment in life, your joy, your happiness in life is based on circumstances like relational status, paycheck, wealth, health. And so if you are not content at this moment in your life, what you need to do is change your circumstances. Go get a new job, enter into a new relationship, buy a bigger house. Then you will finally feel content. We live in a world that assumes that contentment comes from circumstances. And many of us believe the same thing. Even if we won't admit it, we live as if contentment and joy and life is based on our circumstances. And in the church, that's particularly true of the circumstance of marriage. The Department of Labor has been tracking marital status in America for decades And they found back in 1976 that 37.4% of American adults, so 16 and over, were single. That number has grown steadily every year until just this last August, 2014. There are 125 million single Americans. That's 50.2% of the adult population. So in America, single is the new normal. The average American is single, not married, for the first time in the history of this survey. Single is the new normal, but you wouldn't know that when you come to church. Because most churches have unintentionally created this expectation that the ideal Christian life is go to college, get a job, then get married and have kids. And that's the way that you find contentment and purpose and significance. So if you don't have that yet, keep working, keep praying, keep hoping, maybe one day you'll get it. Now, some churches really do believe that. I have a good friend who's single in his 30s. He's been serving at a church uh, at kind of the level we would call a deacon. So serving for years at a very high level. And he was in a meeting one day with the head pastor who did not know that he was single. And in discussing how to get men engaged in ministry in the church, the head pastor said, well, I trust single men about as far as I can throw them. Wow, really? Did you know Paul was single? So was Jesus. But you just threw all single men under the bus because a single man in his 30s, 40s, or 50s does not fit your paradigm of the ideal Christian life. Well, here at Grace Bible Church, let's just be really clear. We do not believe that there is anything wrong with being single your entire life. We do not believe that marriage is better than singleness. 
but we're not always the best at communicating that belief. The last couple of weeks, I've been corresponding with singles here at our church, at Grace Bible Church, to understand how do they perceive our church? How do they think we perceive them? What I found is that the singles here at Grace, they love Grace Bible Church. They love being part of, of our family here. And yet at times, some of them feel a little bit marginalized. They feel a little bit unwelcome here. Sometimes they feel a little bit second class. They feel like our church is trying to squeeze everyone into the mold of married with kids. And if you do not fit that, then you do not fit in. As I've been talking to these single adults in our congregation, they've confessed that there's a lot of things that we do unintentionally that are pretty hurtful to them. When we treat them uh, with pity or sympathy, that hurts. When you treat a person who's out of college and not married with sympathy, you're saying that there's something pitiable about being single. When we assume that they're lonely, that, that hurts. Some of them are lonely, but a lot are not. They have strong friendships in their life. And besides, in our country, there's a whole lot of lonely married people. It hurts when we assume that they have unlimited free time to help us move our furniture. So... <laughs> Need a couch to move? Let me just call my single friend because he's not doing anything tonight. He never is. Well, that's not true. They're incredibly busy doing significant things. They're involved in the community, in the church, in professional organizations. They're learning new skills. They're doing great things. They're not here just to move our furniture, even though they're happy to serve. It hurts single women when we say, well, Jesus just wants you to date him for a while. No, he doesn't. Jesus is not anyone's significant other. He's creator. That is wrong on so many levels. It hurts single adults when we tell them, just keep waiting. God is going to provide. Wait a minute. So you're telling me that God is not providing at this stage in my life while I'm single and that what life is about is waiting for some future stage when finally God shows up and provides what I've always wanted. That sure sounds like you're saying that marriage is better than singleness. I think we as a church have at times unintentionally marginalized single adults in our congregation because we have lived with this unchallenged assumption that the ideal Christian life includes marriage. That if you want to find true contentment and life as a follower of Christ, you must be married and have kids. And if you don't, keep hoping and praying that one day God might provide so you can be content. Well, no, none of that's true because contentment is not based on circumstances. No circumstance, including relational status, is the basis of your contentment or joy in life. It's not how you find significance in life. God wants all believers to find true, lasting, deep contentment and joy in their soul regardless of their circumstances in life. And so that leads us to our question of the morning. How do you find true contentment in life? How do you find true joy and, and happiness that lasts deep in your soul, no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter what your circumstances are? Where do you go to find that kind of deep contentment? Well, the Bible's clear. That kind of contentment's not easy. It does not come natural to the human race. Paul says in Philippians 4 that contentment is something we must learn. It's something you got to work at, strive for, cultivate in your heart. Contentment is something you have to teach yourself how to do. It doesn't come naturally. 
And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is going to teach us how to become content. What he's going to do is reveal to us four truths that can foster contentment in our lives, no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what stage of life we're in. We can have true, deep, soul-stirring joy if we will know these truths and believe them and own them. And then when we are tempted towards bitter or envy or jealousy or discontentment, we need to meditate on these truths and we can find contentment in any circumstance. So four truths that foster contentment that transcends any circumstance of life. First truth is not stated explicitly in 1 Corinthians 7. It's assumed. First truth that leads to contentment is that contentment begins with the gospel. Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians to believers, to those who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior. That's clear all the way through the book, but particularly chapter 15. Paul says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved. So at some point in the past, maybe a year or two before writing this book, Paul preached the gospel to these people. The good news that God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for our sins and rise from the dead so that we could have forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift. And they believed. They accepted that as true. They were saved. And as a result, contentment is now possible for them. In fact, all that Paul teaches in the book of 1 Corinthians is now possible for that audience because they have trusted in Jesus. Now, what Paul's trying to help us understand is that contentment begins with the gospel. You cannot be content in life without the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, contentment, it's going to be elusive. It's going to slip through your fingers until you know that there is a God who loves you, who loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you in your place so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be saved, so that you could have life forever with God in heaven. If you want a contentment that lasts, you have to build it on a foundation of security and hope that comes through the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. So let me just be really direct. If you want to experience true lasting contentment in life, if you want to have joy and happiness deep inside you that lasts through any circumstance, that begins with belief in the gospel. You must choose to believe that God's love is not something you earn. You don't earn forgiveness or eternal life by coming to church on Sunday mornings. It's a gift. It's a free gift that Jesus earned for you by coming to earth, by living a perfect life, by taking your sins, all the bad you would ever do upon himself and dying on the cross, taking the wrath of God that you deserve, paying the full penalty of your sins and then rising from the dead to deliver you from sin and Satan and death so that you could live with God, your Father, for all eternity. You must believe that that is true. You must say, thank you, God. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased for me. The moment you believe that the gospel is true, contentment becomes possible for you, but not easy. For those of you who have trusted in Jesus in the past, you know that at that moment when you believe that Jesus is your savior, God did not reach down from heaven and flip the happy switch in your life so that everything was roses all the time. It doesn't work that way. Life is still hard for us. It's still painful. It's still full of suffering this side of heaven. And so contentment is something we must build and foster and grow and learn. And Paul will teach us how in the remainder of the truths, three more truths, 
that he wants to reveal to us explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So the second truth that, that if you will own and believe and meditate on can lead you to contentment in any circumstance is that your circumstance has advantages. Look with me, chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Paul says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul was a single man at this point in his life. He might have always been single or maybe he was married and his wife died or his wife left him when he converted to Christianity. We don't know. We just know that at this point he is single and he connects his singleness to some gift in verse 7. So what is this gift of singleness? I, I had a friend who wasn't married till later in life who always used to say, well, this is the gift that no one wants. Well, no, that's not true. Paul really wanted this gift. He was really glad he had this gift of singleness. So what is it? Well, it does not appear to be a spiritual gift in the traditional sense because it does not appear in any of the lists of spiritual gifts elsewhere in Scripture. And it doesn't appear to just be a physical thing like a lower than average sex drive. As, as best we can tell, this gift of singleness seems to be a supernaturally strong focus on the mission that God has given you uniquely in life that makes all other things feel small by comparison. So all earthly attachments like marriage are pale in comparison to the mission God has given you to accomplish. Paul was passionate to plant churches in the Gentile world. That was the mission God had given him. And that mission trumped everything else so that marriage wasn't really even on his radar. Now that doesn't mean that Paul wasn't attracted to women. It does not mean that Paul wasn't lonely at times. It's just that his mission of of planting churches made all of that stuff seem small by comparison. Now, how do you know if you have the gift of singleness? I get that question from time to time. How can you tell? Well, I don't know. There's no test in the Bible to figure out if you have the gift of singleness. I can say, I think at least, is my opinion, if you strongly desire marriage and sex, probably you don't have the gift at least yet. What's really interesting, though, in in the verses we read is not what Paul says about this gift of singleness, though, in verse 7. What's interesting is verse 8, where Paul says, without apology, That to remain unmarried, to remain single, is better than getting married. Why does he say that? Why does Paul tell us that singleness is better than marriage? He gives you the answer starting in verse 32. Verse 32, Paul says, But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now, Paul is not saying that singleness is always better than marriage. What he's doing is speaking to a culture that assumed that everyone should get married, especially if you were a Jew. If you were a Jewish man in your 30s in Paul's day and you were not married, people assumed something was wrong with you. You're weird if if you're not married. Paul says, no, 
It's not true at all. Singleness is actually good. Singleness has great advantages. One greatest of all advantage, singleness affords you the opportunity for undistracted devotion to the Lord. Those of you who are married know what that's about. It's not hard to explain that one. When I was a single man, I had great quiet times. Any time of day, I could open the Bible, I could read it. I could sit in my chair, I could have my coffee, I could have wonderful, uninterrupted time in the word and in prayer. Now I'm married and I have two five-year-olds running around the house. So I have not had an uninterrupted quiet time and longer than I can remember. Every morning without fail, I'll, I'll sit down in my chair, I'll have my coffee and I'm going through the Bible in a year. So I'll, I'll read the passage for the day and it never fails that I get like halfway through and there's this moment when, when now I'm awake, the coffee's kicking in and I feel this need to confess sin to the Lord or to praise the Lord or give thanks to God. I'm really getting into it. It's this emotional moment and then in walks a naked child who needs me to help them put their underwear on. And that totally ruins the mood. It's just that worship moment is over. And that's a reminder to me that there's these things I really miss about when I was single. That has taught me that every stage of life has its advantages and disadvantages. Every stage of life has its pleasures and pains. And as a result, there is no ideal stage of life where everything is finally perfect and satisfying. Most people in this world don't understand that. They assume that there is some stage that they are working towards that when they get there, finally life will be everything they wanted it to be. If I can just get to that stage, then I will be happy. Then I will be content. So high schoolers, they assume that stage is college. I just can't wait to get to college and life will be perfect. College students assume it's graduation. Can't wait to graduate, get a job, get paid, then life will be perfect. People get graduate, get, get, uh, start a job and then assume, well, well, when I get married, that's when I'll really be content. That's when I'll really be happy. They get married and assume, well, it's when we have kids. That's when we will be satisfied, when we will be content in life. Then they have kids and they begin assuming, well, it's when the kids move out of the house. That finally, I will have the life I always dreamed of. Everyone assumes that if they can just get to the next stage of life, finally they will be content. No, they won't. Because every stage of life is hard and then you die. That is life, (laughs) this side of heaven. Every stage of it is hard. It does not get easier until the next life. You've got to understand, the grass is not greener on the other side of the fence doesn't get greener till you get to heaven. Every stage of life is hard. Every stage of life has its unique pleasures and pains. What that means is that if you are ever going to be content in this life, you must learn to be content now. Whatever stage of life you're in, you must learn to see and celebrate the unique advantages of this stage of life. You must learn to give thanks and to be able to celebrate the circumstances of your life now if you're ever going to have contentment. Learn to see, celebrate, and give thanks for the advantages that are apparent in this stage of your life. If you can learn contentment now, then you can learn contentment in any stage and in any circumstance. So that's the second truth that God has for us this morning. Second truth that fosters contentment. Third truth that will foster contentment. The end is near. Look with me starting in verse 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. 
I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. But I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none and those who weep as though they did not weep and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice and those who buy as though they did not possess and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it for the form of this world is passing away. Paul saw a crisis coming. Some commentators think he's talking about a famine that was severe at that time in the city of Corinth. But I don't think so. I think he has something bigger on his mind because of the last phrase that we read. The form of this world is passing away. I think Paul is talking about the end times. The end of this age when Jesus comes back. Paul wants us to understand that the time is short. You are living in the last days. Biblically speaking, that's what the Bible calls this age of human history, the last days, because Jesus could return at any moment. There is nothing else that has to happen on earth prophetically before Jesus returns. He could come back before you eat lunch today. And the reality of that imminent return of Christ, that he could come at any time, that that reality, it helps us to put the circumstances of our life in perspective, So buying and selling, Paul says, doesn't really matter because buying and selling is temporary. It's not going to last when Jesus comes back and weeping and rejoicing don't really matter because they're temporary. Your pleasures and your pains will not last when Jesus comes back and even marriage, not that significant because it will not last when Jesus comes back. So it is possible as a single person who never gets married, to have contentment in life because you know that marriage is not an eternal thing. Marriage does not last when Jesus comes back. Marriage does not last into eternity. And so you recognize that there's gonna be this moment when we're all chilling in heaven and none of us are gonna care who was married and who was not. Because that'll be a past life thing. We won't think about that. It'll be irrelevant to us. We will be so enjoying the wonder of heaven that no one will care about whether they were married or not. Now, for some of you, that makes you kind of sad because you're engaged and you're thinking about how romantic it's going to be to finally be married and you're going to have this eternal bond with your spouse and I'm just, I'm just killing that. Well, let me, let me clarify. When you get to heaven, you will not love your spouse less than you do now. You actually love your spouse more because you'll love with perfect Love, unconditional love, absolute, infinite, divine love. It will just be that that love will be so wide that it will extend to all of your brothers and sisters in Christ. It will encompass everyone. And so Julie and I will be closer to one another in eternity, not because we're husband and wife, but because we're bound with a love that is infinitely stronger than marital love that we share with all of you. And so if you never get married in this life, who cares? Because marital love is nothing compared to the love that we will all have for one another for all eternity. Paul wants us to understand that in view of what is coming, in view of how short this life is and how much better the next life is, the circumstances of this life don't matter that much. 
They're not where we should focus our attention. That's why Paul says, kind of odd, kind of harsh sounding phrase in verse 29. From now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Paul's not giving husbands permission to be jerks to their wives. What Paul is saying is that we in marriage, we need to live with this mutual understanding that marriage is temporary. It will not last. And so it is not that which defines our identity or our significance or drives our contentment in life. Because identity and significance and contentment, they must be built on eternal things and marriage is not eternal. I think what Paul is doing here is the same thing that Jesus did in a very unusual verse, Luke 14, 26. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. He does not want you to actually hate your family. What he wants you to do is recognize the relative importance of things. Your marriage is not that important compared to your relationship with God. Because marriage does not last, but your relationship with Jesus is eternal. Jesus wants you to put your relationship with him, your time in his word, your time in prayer, your service and devotion to his kingdom as your absolute number one priority in life. It trumps every other relationship because every other relationship is temporary. That's the one that lasts. You can have contentment at any stage of life, in any circumstance of life, if you will believe that your time on earth is short. Even if you live to be 100, that's nothing compared to eternity. So all of the pursuits of this world, including marriage and parenting, are just a vapor, a flash, and they're gone. What really matters is your walk with Christ. Your time in his word, time in prayer, time building his kingdom, because that's what lasts for eternity. That helps put a perspective that can drive contentment. Fourth truth that will drive and foster contentment in your life. What matters is obedient service. What matters in life is obedient service. Look with me, starting in verse 17. Paul says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price, therefore do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Paul picks up two more circumstances of life that in first century Corinth were held up as, as the basis of your significance and value to society. So circumcision and slavery. Circumcision, uh, the Jews demanded it. So if you're going to be a good Jew and you're a man, you had to be circumcised. The Gentiles thought exactly the opposite. The Greeks, they ridiculed it. They laughed if a man was circumcised. So depending on who you were trying to impress, whether a Jew or a Greek, you might want to either get circumcised or get uncircumcised. And yes, both were possible. And I'm not going to explain how. But that circumstance of circumcision became a very important thing in first century Corinth. So was slavery. By our best estimates, about a third of the population of ancient Corinth were slaves. 
Another third of the population were freedmen. So former slaves were able to purchase their slavery. And the final third were freeborn. And where you fit within those three groups determined your significance and value in Corinth. Determined everything for you. Your, your meaning as a person, your, your identity was determined by which of those groups you were a part of. Now it's very easy to see that of those three groups, Paul prefers freedom. If you can purchase your, your, your freedom from slavery, Paul encourages you to do that. It is easy to show from 1 Corinthians and from the book of Philemon that Paul was anti-slavery, and yet he was also a realist. He knew that slavery wasn't going anywhere anytime soon in the Roman Empire. And so that meant that there would be slaves in churches, and Paul wanted those slaves to know That the fact that they're slaves does not determine or lessen their identity or significance, nor does it prevent them from finding true contentment in life. It's the point of verse 19. What matters is not whether you're slave or free. What matters is you choose to obey God. That you devote yourself to the service of God. That's where contentment is found. And so even in a circumstance as horrible as slavery, you can find true, deep joy and contentment in your soul if you will follow Christ. Now that's not an excuse for slavery. What that is, is is Paul saying slavery doesn't get the final word on defining you and your value in life. You can find joy and contentment even in a circumstance as horrific as slavery because what matters is choosing to obey the Lord. The way to find contentment in life is to choose to devote yourself to the service of God. Devote yourself to building his kingdom, to sharing his gospel, to obeying him and and pleasing him. That's where you'll find lasting happiness. And so let's go back. The advantage of singleness. When you are single, you have unprecedented freedom in your life. But Paul wants you to understand, if you want to find contentment, if you want to find happiness, you need to understand, you as a single are not free from obligation. You are free for service. That's how you find joy in the single life. You dedicate this freedom to the service of God. If you will devote yourself to him, then you will find a a deep and lasting joy and happiness in life. That's really the catch-22 of happiness. It's true for all of us, married, single, all of us. It's a catch-22 for happiness. If you chase happiness, if you chase after happiness by focusing on your desires, trying to satisfy those desires, you will never find it. Happiness will elude you. It will slip through your fingers. You'll be happy for a moment, but contentment will not last. If you will instead choose to chase the Lord, devoting yourself to his desires, to pleasing him, then happiness will find you. Joy will find you. Contentment will find you. It's a catch-22. You cannot find happiness by chasing after it. You can only find it by chasing after the Lord. You chase after him, you devote yourself to serving God, and true, lasting contentment will find you. And so as the men go back to prepare communion, let me just be very practical, very specific about what this looks like in life. If you want to find contentment that lasts, joy deep down in your soul that can weather any circumstance, then first you got to avoid sin. You see, sin poisons contentment. Sin makes you happy for a moment. That's always the promise of sin. It makes you happy for, for just a moment, but then it steals your joy and it, it prevents contentment in your life. And so you have to say no to sins like envy and pride and selfishness and lust. All of those things, if you give in to them, they will rob you of contentment. So you have to say no to sin, but it's not enough to just 
run away or say no to bad stuff in your life. You also have to run towards that which is good. You've got to run towards that which is good in life. You've got to find your place to serve the Lord and to build his kingdom. You've got to discover how God has gifted you how he has crafted you uniquely to build his church, to share his gospel. You gotta find that place on earth that God designed for you to fill, for you to serve. And you gotta devote yourself to it. You gotta pour your time and your attention into building the kingdom of God in line with your spiritual gifts. And then you will find joy. You will find true satisfaction. So I was where many of you were or are right now. About 15 years ago, 16 years ago, I graduated from A&M. And I moved up to Washington, D.C. I left all of my friends and all of my family. I didn't know anyone up there. So I moved halfway across the country to take a job that I discovered within about three weeks of starting my job that I hated it. That it was awful. It was not at all what I had hoped. It was really, really stressful. A company that was failing. Uh, I, I really disliked this job, but I had debt in my life, so I couldn't quit the job. And so life was really painful. Life was really unfortunate for me at that time, and yet I was incredibly content because God gave me an opportunity when I moved to to D.C. to start an inductive Bible study at at a little Bible church there. And and that's kind of what God designed me to do, teaching, that's my thing. And so I would go to work and hate it, it was awful, but then I would leave and I would grab a quick bite to eat and I'd go to Barnes & Noble and grab a latte and a table and prepare Bible study and I loved it. I felt as much contentment at that stage of my life as I ever have, even though circumstances were awful. I had incredible joy deep down in my soul because I had found the place on earth I was designed to serve. You find that place where God designed you to serve, you to build his kingdom, to share his gospel. You pour yourself in it. You devote yourself to building the kingdom of God, to serving Jesus, and you will find a joy, a happiness, a satisfaction deep in your soul that will transcend any circumstance. Contentment really is possible. Any stage of life, any circumstance of life, if you will begin with the gospel, if you will believe that there's a God who loves you, who sent his son to die for you and rise from the dead so that you could have peace and love and eternal life as a free gift. Begins with the gospel. You can have contentment if you will choose to believe that your circumstance, your stage of life right now has unique and compelling advantages. If you will learn to see and celebrate the advantages of your stage of life right now, you can have contentment. You can have contentment if you will choose to believe that the end is near. That all the things that you want in this world, even really good things like marriage and kids are temporary. They don't last. They're but a vapor and then they're gone. You'll believe that this life is short compared to eternity if you will devote yourself to a relationship with God, the one relationship that lasts, that really means something, then you can discover contentment in any circumstance of life. And if you will devote yourself to serving the Lord, running from sin, running towards the mission that he crafted you to fulfill, if you will devote yourself to that mission, if you will devote yourself to building God's kingdom and sharing his gospel, you will find a joy, a contentment, and a happiness deep in your soul that can transcend any circumstance of life. This morning, we have the privilege of getting to celebrate particularly that first truth on the board by taking communion together. As the men pass the elements, what I ask you to do while the elements pass is to just give thanks for a moment. 
that God has made it possible for you to have contentment and joy in life. But it wasn't easy. The cost for God to make it possible for you to have peace and contentment was the life of his own son. Jesus had to die so that you could be happy, so that you could have joy, so that you could have contentment for eternity. So I want you to spend a moment to give thanks to God that he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you and rise from the dead so that you can have peace and joy forever as an absolutely free gift. Let's give thanks. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We praise you and we thank you that that we do not have to wait for you to provide because you already have. You've provided the one thing we really need. You've provided your own son who died for us and rose from the dead so that we could have eternal life and forgiveness and peace and hope and salvation. Lord, we are rich because of Jesus how we praise you and thank you that that eternal life and forgiveness, those are not things that we need to hope for or wait for. They're things we already have because Jesus died for us and rose from the dead. We thank you for your son and we pray that as, as we look at him, as we look at what he has done, we pray that you would help us to become content, to discover a joy, a, a deep happiness within us that can transcend any circumstance. And Lord, we pray this not just for ourselves, but for the world. We pray that you would help us to learn contentment, to, to discover deep and lasting joy within us so that when the world looks at Grace Bible Church, they would see people who are supernaturally joyful, that they would see people who are content even despite the pain and suffering of life and that as a result, they would be attracted to Jesus, your son. I pray that we would be a place that attracts the world to your son, Jesus Christ. I pray help us to walk in contentment and joy this week, all for the name, glory, and renown of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you guys.